really good conference. I left here last Sunday. I was a little scratchy last Sunday, and by the time Wednesday got there, I was really beginning to have to push it to speak. Thursday night, I called upon all my resources, spent the whole day sucking on Voice Restorer, which... uh, I guess lack the essential ingredient of bourbon or scotch or whatever is usually there. <clears throat> but it managed to uh, do the job anyway and got me through Thursday night. By the time I was called back to the po- podium Thursday night to say, have a parting word, I could barely even whisper. And then Friday and yesterday, I hardly had a voice, so I assumed that if I spoke for two hours this morning, I would make it through the first hour and we would be hurting the second hour, so we decided just to go with one service. It was a good conference. There were about um, maybe 300 to 400 people there at McCoy Memorial Baptist Church, and uh, it was uh, interesting. The music was quite lively and good, as you can imagine, and and, uh, we had a Good time, and I was well received, and the people enjoyed the teaching very much and had a tremendous number of positive responses. And so I think that this may, uh, may get an opportunity to go back again sometime in the future. But it was a tough week for uh, R.A. Williams, who's the pastor there and is the head of the ministry group that has the uh, pastor's conference that I've been, that I worked with, because uh, his wife went to be with the Lord the Friday night before uh, I left, so he was in the middle of conducting uh, funeral arrangements and memorial service arrangements throughout the week. But one of the interesting sidelights is because of his stature among uh, pastors in the black community. The last night on Thursday night when I taught, and what I covered was much of what I'd covered the last three or four weeks in our James series on Wednesday night, the hearing of the word and what that involves going through regeneration, the prerequisites, confession, fellowship, all of those things, why that's important, and concluding on Thursday night with that passage dealing with the mirror. And I went from there to discuss the mirror analogy that's used in the tongues passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. So I got to really exegete that. And there were two or three pastors who had come in that day who had national stature who uh, were there for to be there for the funeral on Friday and got to hear a solid exegesis on why tongues has ceased. So the Lord used that, I think, in some interesting ways. And it was, as I was standing there, suddenly I looked out on the crowd and I recognized two or three of the, those guys and I thought, my, what in the world am I doing here preaching to these guys? This is really something. So the Lord definitely had a, had a reason and a purpose behind that. Well, before we get started this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to worship you because you are a God who has loved us from eternity past and provided a perfect plan for our redemption. And you sent your Son 
to become flesh, impeccable flesh, full, undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever, that he might go to the cross and die there as our spiritual substitute, paying the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning and to understand the dynamics of the hypostatic union, the person of our Lord, that we might learn to love him more and appreciate our salvation in a greater way. We pray that God the Holy Spirit who teaches us would help us to understand these important doctrines and apply them in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the fifth chapter of John. John chapter 5. I think we're down to about verse 19. I think I'm going to have to sip on my coffee to make it through the morning. Verse 19 begins. Let me just read verses of two or three verses which we'll try to cover this morning. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the, Son, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In this passage, and the one we looked at last week, it turns upon five key verbs, which are five verbs that demonstrate the equality of Jesus Christ with God the Father. And this is part of the doctrine of the Trinity, and relates, of course, to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, I received an interesting email this week, just to prepare you a little bit for what we have to cover this morning. It said, uh, I have not emailed you in a while, just thought I'd give you an update. Your tapes are spreading like wildfire in Houston. Several of my friends and several of my wife's friends have all started listening, and they're really enjoying them. Whenever you might feel at times that no one is really listening, just remember all the lives of positive believers you are touching that you will never meet, well, at least not in this life. Just the people in my life that you are reaching through your tape ministry is so awesome to see. By the way, I'm taking history of doctrine as an elective from Dr. Jeff Bingham. He seems very knowledgeable. It is so neat because we are learning about the history of theological doctrines and the cultural influences that affected the beliefs of people throughout history. Things such as modalistic monarchianism, Gnosticism, all of the different councils and creeds, the study of Descartes, Kant, etc., etc. These are all the things that I've heard on your tapes. It was funny because the prof asked when the last time anyone heard a message on the Trinity, hypostatic union, or the like in church, and the whole class said, never. I wanted to say, I do on Pastor Dean's tapes. The point is, you're going to doctrinal places where most pastors fear to tread or don't know enough to tread. It is great, but also sad to hear people's responses to your tapes. Most have never even heard of these doctrines and didn't even realize the Bible contained them. 
There should be a pastor teaching like you in a church on every corner. Keep up the good work. The Lord is truly using you. So that was nice to get that encouragement, but I didn't read that simply to show how nice it is that the tapes are having a blessing, but to show you how rare it is to get the kind of teaching that I'm trying to give you and how important it is to understand these things because we're going into the doctrine of the Trinity and hypostatic union in a little more detail this morning because this passage that we're in in John chapter 5 is one of the most complex passages in all of the New Testament on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and it is just loaded with important doctrine related to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and it is important for us and to our advantage to slow down and discover just what is contained in these passages. First of all, because we know that we cannot love someone whom we do not know. And most Christians run around talking about how they love the Lord so much, and yet they can't tell you anything about uh, his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. They can't tell you anything about the hypostatic union. They do not know uh, his relationship to man during the Old Testament as the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, the, his ministry as the angel of the Lord, or any of these things. And you wonder how Christians who are so abysmally ignorant of the Lord can even come close to thinking they love him. It's just raw emotion with no content Whatsoever, and that is a very silly and superficial sentimental concept of love that has nothing to do with the biblical concept of love. And it's no wonder that when these people run into hardship and crises in their lives that they just absolutely crater because they have no doctrine to undergird their spiritual life. So we're looking at two doctrines that are fundamental to this entire section. The first is the Trinity, just in terms of a brief definition The Trinity means that God exists as one person, one essence, but subsists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial. Here is a diagram of the essence of God. God has ten attributes, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutable, and veracity. All of those attributes are shared by all three members of the Trinity equally. They are all equally sovereign, equally righteous, equally just, equally love, equally eternal, and all of the rest. In understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, we have this diagram this triangle, that what has happened is that we must maintain the unity of the Trinity, that God is one. The Shema passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, uh, the Lord our God is one. And Echad there, which is the Hebrew for one, means a unity. God is a unity. But there is also a distinction within the Godhead, a distinction of persons. So we have the unity on one side of the triangle here, diversity on the other side to indicate the distinction in person between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then at the bottom, the, they are equal. We must hold them in equality. 
what happens when you emphasize unity and equality too much, then you move towards this lower left-hand point, modalism. Modalism was the idea that God just expressed himself in one of three roles. He's just one person. Sometimes he expresses himself to man as a father, sometimes as a son, and other times as the Holy Spirit. If you emphasize their unity and their diversity and fall short on equality, then you have to end up with some sort of subordination within the Trinity. And this was the idea, it was known as adoptionism or subordinationism in the early church. When Jesus Christ was adopted, he is not eternal as the Father. He's not as equal with the Father. There's only one God. They were holding on too much to the idea of just pure monotheism. And so they would always end up subordinating one member of the Trinity to another and losing sight of the equality. If, on the other hand, you emphasize their distinction, their diversity, and their equality too much, then you end up with three gods. You lose sight of the idea of their unity. So it's important to maintain. That's why this circle is in the middle. It maintains a perfect balance between unity, diversity, and equality. So you have three persons with one essence who are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. I don't know if that's a new word for you, but substance was the word that was used in the old creeds, and it means essence. The word hypostasis, from which we get our term hypostatic, is a Greek word that means substantial nature, essence, or being. So in the uh, older creeds, they use that term that the Holy God, the Son, had the same hypostasis, the same substance, meaning the same essence as the Father. So it was the historically the historical articulation of the Trinity is that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. <clears throat> Last time I talked a little bit about the background to this historically. We came to uh, the situation in John 5 where we have the occasion of this discourse, which is the healing. And it was done on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees reacted to that because it violated their traditions of the Sabbath. And so they were challenging Jesus, and before they could really even challenge him, Jesus took the offensive. It's always best in battle and confrontation to go on the offensive and not remain in the, on the defensive. And before they did much or said much, were not given any questions on their part. He answered them in verse 7 and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And this is the Greek word ergazomai. Looks like this in the Greek. E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I. Ergazomai. This should be an omicron. E-R-G-O. Ergazomai. And Jesus uses the same verb, Same present active tense, active indicative to describe his work and the Father's work, which is a claim to equality. Now, this may be a little too subtle and a little too sophisticated for 20th century Americans who have been educated by our advanced educational system, but it was not too sophisticated for the uh, Jews. They completely understood what he was saying, that he was claiming to be God, And they immediately 
reacted to it, and it was settled in their minds that they were going to kill him. From this, this is the turning point. On the basis of that one sentence, the Jews were told in verse 18 were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, there is a good way and a bad way to take the word equality, I said last week. The first way is equal in the, in the good sense, having the same purposes, the same will, the same direction. The bad way is when someone says, I'm equal with you, and therefore I have the right to make a different decision and to exercise my autonomy and go my own way. And that is equality with the sense of insubordination to it. And unfortunately, that is the sense of equality that has been used too often in the assertion of personal rights in 20th century America. People want to be equal but go their own way in opposition to the laws of establishment and the laws of the country in many ways. But that is not the sense that Jesus uses it here. He uses it here in the sense of equal and insubordination to the Father. You see, this is something that has been lost in in modern America is the idea that uh, some two people can be equal in person and yet one be subordinated to the other in terms of their role. But you see this all the time on a football team. You have two different players. One may be a, a pulling guard and one may be a, a, a quarterback and they are both excellent players, make the Hall of Fame and get all the awards because of the way they play. And yet the quarterback is the the one who's in charge of the team. He has the authority to call the plays and determine what, what the uh, pulling guard must do. That their subordination does not affect their equality. And yet, especially in the uh, <clears throat> women's equality, women's live movement that came out of the 60s, you have this emphasis that when you make the man uh, the head, the authority over the woman in the marriage, then you're saying they're not equal. And that is just patently absurd. One of the things that took place this last week is that a former professor of mine, friend of mine, Dr. H. Wayne House, who used to be at Dallas Seminary, he's long since gone and taught at other places, is now in Southern California. And one of Wayne's uh, areas of expertise is on uh, the biblical roles of men and women. He was the founder of the Council of uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. And he's written a book called The Role of Women in Ministry and is debated across the country on college campuses with liberals who espouse the view that there is full equality and that the Bible is really antiquated and authoritarian and all these other things. And he always makes this point that if you go follow the logic and the reasoning that has been espoused by the uh, women's lib movement and this on this role uh, interchangeability between man and woman, then you're basically making a heretical statement against the very essence of the Trinity. And that so often is the case in many, many moves that are made in modern thought, is that if you go push things to their ultimate, then you have these problems. And we met with him this last week because apparently in, in many of the black churches that uh, Dr. Williams and the others are dealing with this issue of women preachers is, is a major problem. And uh, R.A. had asked me several weeks ago if I knew somebody who could, who could address this for the conference next year. 
And I said, I don't know just the man, but I haven't heard from him in years, so I've got to track him down. It turned out he's right there in California. And Wayne was telling us about a debate he had with a, with a woman professor, some major university, maybe Northwestern or, or uh, University of Chicago, somewhere there in Illinois. And this debate, and in the debate she makes the claim that when the Bible talks about headship, it has the idea of the source, like you talk about the head of a river. And so Wayne, in his very relaxed, funny, laid-back style, just reaches into his briefcase and pulls out a sheaf of papers. It says, I have a printout here from the Ibicus Project of every use of the Greek word kephale, which means head, in ancient Greek literature. Would you please show me just one instance out of these 2,000 usages where it ever meant source? or ever means anything other than authority. From that point on, he had to sort of say, if I were taking your side of the debate, I would argue this. We have, as he put it, we have won the intellectual debate, but we have lost the emotional debate, because as is so often the case in our country, we are in an emotional revolt status, and we don't care what the facts are, We are committed to spiritual and therefore political and economic positions that are in antagonism to the establishment protocol laid down by God. And until we begin to see a shift in positive volition in this country, we will continue to go down the road to destruction, and it will continue to play itself out in our families and in our children, and in our work relationships. Because when you start messing with the fundamental roles of men and women in society, and you start using the military as a means of social experimentation, and you start mandating these role changes through various subtle means of legislation, then what you are doing is tampering with the basic makeup of creation, and you are living in an unrealistic, irrational world that is the creation of your own autonomous, arrogant imagination. And sooner or later, that house of cards is going to collapse. And so the government, through the use of these these social engineering uh, laws and other policies that they're setting forth, are basically eroding our entire culture from the inside out. Because ultimately what we learn from this in studying the Trinity is at the very core of ultimate reality, there is authority. There is authority that has existed eternally within the Godhead. And there are eternal relationships within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that indicate true equality coexisting at the same time that there is subordination of role and distinction of mission. And until people come to understand that, that in society that God, and in creation, God created men with a male soul designed to exercise initiative and leadership within certain spheres of life and created women as responders and to exercise their role in certain spheres of life. And that when you start trying to make those interchangeable, you're tampering with the very core of of God's created order and it will cause a collapse until people come to realize that this is part of ultimate reality and not something that was invented or not something that was added because of sin or anything like that but is is inherent within the basic character of God 
until we realize that, we're going to have a lot of trouble. Now we get back to our passage, and we want to bring a little historical insight into how this was developed and understood. And last week I talked about Arianism, and this was just sort of a rehash of an earlier heresy called Ebionitism and sometimes Adoptionism. And that was the idea that God the Father existed from eternity past, and then at some point <clears throat> Christ was created, but before any other creatures were created. And so terms like Son of God were taken to mean uh, generation, taken to mean descent, or in, in the sense of procreation. And other creatures are then uh, subordinate to Christ because He is considered the first in terms of creatures. But that is not what the Scripture teaches. This was called uh, dynamic uh, monarchianism, and that meant dynamic meaning power, that God infused the power of deity into Christ at some point after His creation. Sometimes it's taken at the baptism of Jesus, sometimes other points. But, <coughs> excuse me, this was refuted at the, nice, at the um, Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 A.D. Athanasius was the bishop in Alexandria who brought this to everyone's attention. They had a... Uh, council and, and like you'll find in most theological disagreements, about two percent of the people were on Arius's side, another two percent were on Athanasius' side, and uh, the other ninety-six percent didn't have a clue for years as to what the theological issues were. You see, theology is not easy; it demands a lot of thought. And most people don't want to put forth the mental sweat to think theologically. And so they just say, well, let's not, let's not worry about all these little details. Let's just all get together and hold hands and love Jesus together and just enjoy the fact that we have this experience that we can share and go home with our warm fuzzies. But the Scriptures, as we have seen, are not that way. The Scripture talks about a unity of faith. It's not a artificial unity, it's a unity of doctrine. And Jesus said that those who worship God must worship Him how? By means of God the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine. And the problem is that most Christians don't spend enough time learning any doctrine or going to church to know how to worship God and know anything about God, and so their worship is just an absolute failure and never gets anywhere, and they're just playing games with God. Nicene Creed, they finally wrote it out, it was not the end of the battle, though. It really marked the beginning of the battle. And they said, We believe in one God, the Father of all governing, creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice the term, because we're going to get to this in this lesson this morning. The Son of God, that's a title for Jesus. And notice how they define that. Begotten of the Father as only begotten. Using that word begotten, not made. He is begotten, that is, further defined as from the essence of the Father. And they use the word homoousion in the Greek. Now this was called, just a little fun thing that we like to talk about. This was, in the Greek, this is the word homoousion. H-O-M-O, and that word means same, homo. Usion from the word being. It's the same essence, the same homo usion, same being. 
Now, there was another word that the middle of the rotors wanted to use, and that was homoousion, and the only difference was it had an I here. And this, the difference was that the middle of the rotors wanted to compromise by saying that Jesus was of similar essence. The Orthodox crowd wanted to say the same essence. So this was called the Battle of the Diphthongs. Just to show one little letter can have an incredible impact on history. And the decision was made to scratch the iota there and go with the word homoousion, that Jesus was of the same or identical essence as the Father. And that's what this means when it says from the essence, the same essence of the Father, God from God, that is true deity, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. And their conception was that begotten describes the relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity throughout all eternity. He has this relationship. It is not a term that is related to the virgin conception and incarnation, but a term that describes the eternal generation of the Son from the Father. From the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth. And we'll just stop there because of the, that's all it covers in terms of the basic Christology. Arianism was defeated, but there were a lot of political moves made through the rest of the century, and it wasn't until the Council of Chalcedon, 126 years later in 451 A.D., that Christology was finally clearly articulated. And I want to read to you the Creed of Chalcedon. Some people pronounce it Chalcedon because in the transliteration from the Greek, you have a, a, a key, what looks like the letter X in English, and that's usually transliterated as CH, but it was pronounced like a hard K in Greek. So the proper pronunciation is Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, that is for us we would say a rational soul. Rational soul, that is a human soul, and body. Consubstantial, there's that word I was using earlier, consubstantial, the same essence, that's what that means. Consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. In other words, has the same essence of full deity with the Father according to deity, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. That is, he's undiminished deity and true humanity. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. So they saw Mary as the mother of the humanity of Christ. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, that's the hypostatic union, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, 
and the creed of the Holy Fathers was handed down to us. That is the classic articulation of the Trinity and the hypostatic union in church history. The Council of Chalcedon and everything else that's been written or said is a footnote to that one statement. And almost all, that these are called the ecumenical creeds. Nicaea, Ephesus, uh, Chalcedon, Constantinople, a couple of others. And all so-called Christian groups, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, all subscribe to those. That's why they're called ecumenical creeds. Not in the bad sense of the word ecumenical, but that all believers, that, that defines orthodoxy. Everything's split after that, but those defined orthodoxy. So that helps us understand what we're talking about. We talk about the Trinity and the hypostatic union, who Jesus Christ is. This is our Lord and Savior who died for us, and this is why he could die for us, is because he was fully God. Therefore, his substitutionary atonement would have eternal value for us. And he was fully man and perfect man, so he could die as our substitute. God could not die for man. A man had to die for man. A true man had to die for man. And a sinless man had to die for man. Now this brings us to verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and in the King James it translated it, Verily, verily, I say to you, in the Greek it reads, Amen, Amen. And although it is translated truly, truly, it has a greater significance than that. It's sort of a call to attention here. I'm going to put this in boldface and italics for you to pay attention. This is a principle that I am articulating here, and you need to pay attention to it. And there are three times in this passage that Jesus does this. He does it here in verse 19, and then again in 24 and 25. And I'm going to try to cover down to 23. 24 and 25 relate to one another, and we'll cover that when we, there's a slight shift in emphasis. And so we'll cover this down through 23 this morning. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. This is an important principle. The Son is not able to do from himself nothing. Now that is the literal Greek. It's bad English. In English, if you have a double negative, it indicates a positive. But in Greek, that's not true. In Greek, if you really want to say something is not ever going to happen, you say it won't not never happen. I mean, you just pile your negatives on top of one another for emphasis. And no matter how many negatives you put in there, it just increases the negativity of the statement. So by using two negatives here, Jesus is emphasizing that the absolute position of the Son is being under the authority of the Father. Remember the definition of the kenosis, that Jesus Christ voluntarily restricted the independent use of His attributes. He is not going to operate independent of the Father. He is equal to the Father. That's the thrust of this whole section. Five verbs showing equality with deity, but He is subordinate to God's plan for the human race and has made a volitional decision to fulfill the plan of God as set forth in the Council of Divine Decrees from eternity past. Now there's an important little shift in the verbs here. In verse 17 we have the synonym ergodzomai, which means to work. Here we have the verb poieo. Looks like this in the Greek, and it should be familiar to those of you who've been attending on Wednesday nights in a study on James, poieo. 
And four times that is used in this passage, each time with a different nuance and tense shift and mood shift, which is instructive doctrinally, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the basic meaning of the word is to perform. It's, it's, the, it's the yeoman word to do like in English. You can use do to describe all kinds of things in English. It's just a very broad word. And poieo is the same kind of word in Greek. It means to perform, to enact, to complete, to execute, to implement, to apply, to operate, to work, to function. Here it is the present active infinitive. It is an infinitive of purpose that the Son has purpose that He cannot do or perform anything from the ultimate source of Himself. But before we get any further into understanding the doing role of the Son, we have to notice that Jesus uses a very important word to refer to Himself here, and that is the noun weos. Looks like this in the Greek, huios. This is a word for H-U-I-O-S, huios, for adult son, and is the word that is the title that is referred to Jesus, both in terms of his being the son of God and the son of man. But we have to stop and understand the doctrine of the sonship of Christ before we go any further, because this is a doctrine that does create some confusion for people. And it is critical for us to understand the sonship of Christ. Point number one. Son of can mean offspring of or descendant of. And sometimes people want to take, well, son of God, he's a descendant of God or, or something like that or offspring. But it does not restrict itself to that meaning. In the idiom, of, especially in Hebrew, the term meant of the order of. Of the order of, that he is of the order of something. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 35, you have the phrase sons of the prophets. That somebody was, if they were one of the sons of the prophets, they were in the order of the prophets. They were one of the prophets. They were called the sons of the prophets. Also in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 28, you have the phrase sons of the singers. If you were one of the sons of the singers, that didn't mean that daddy was playing in a band down in the temple. It meant that you were one of the singers. You were in the order of the singers. So the phrase son of God does not mean descendant or offspring of God. It means of the order of God and is a clear claim to full undiminished deity. So when the phrase son of God is applied to Jesus, it indicates full absolute deity. So when somebody comes along sometime and you're witnessing to somebody and they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you can take him to this passage and say, of course he did. You know, only, a, only an idiot or someone with their own agenda of trying to destroy Christianity would try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Point number two. In Jewish usage, the term son of indicated equality and identity of essence or nature. The term son of also indicated equality or identity of essence or nature. So if you were the son of something, then that meant you were identical in essence or nature to that. Um, <clears throat> it does not necessarily imply subordination or inequality. 
So in Jewish usage, the term son of indicated equality and identity of essence or nature and does not imply subordination or inequality. Point number three, the term son of indicated the essential character of someone. For example, Barnabas, who was Paul's traveling companion on the first missionary journey, was called the son of encouragement. That doesn't mean daddy was encouragement. It meant that his, his personality was that he was an encourager. So encouragement characterized the essence of Barnabas. Also, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, two of the apostles, were called the sons of thunder. And that indicated something about their personality, that they were rather strong and, and had thunderous personalities, fairly volatile, strong natures. So that the term was used in the idiom to describe the attributes or essence of someone's character. Once again, in this idiom, we see that Son of God indicates full deity. Point number four. The term Son of God also has a strong meaning uh, related to kingship and the royal role of the Messiah. It indicates kingship and is tied to the messianic king, the son of David. And in order to see this, I want to do a little study, a little walk through the Old Testament on the doctrine of sonship under point number four. So let's turn, keep your place here in John 4, or in John 5, and let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Samuel 7, 14. This is a crucial passage where God makes His covenant with David. This is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7.14, God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom, he's talking to David, shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. So there's a promise that David would have a son who would reign forever. Now this was taken to refer to the Messiah, because no king, human king, if you trace through the physical descendants of Abraham following, uh, many of them failed, and Psalm 89 is a discourse on the Davidic covenant and the failure of the kings to fulfill the, the, the requirements for the ideal king laid out in the Davidic covenant. So you have, as the first plank in our understanding here, the Davidic covenant and the connection between the, uh, the royalty, royal kingship, and the Messiah. Now turn back to Psalm chapter 2. The second psalm, which is a very important psalm, uh, theologically for a number of dis- different reasons. It's one of uh, a few psalms that are quoted many times in the New Testament. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The picture here is of war against God and His anointed. The nations are gathered on one side, God and His anointed on the other. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. We get our word Messiah as a transliteration of Mashiach. 
It was translated into Greek as Christos. So it's against the Lord and against his Christ. So here we see uh, something interesting in terms of the relationship to the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, a mention of God and his Christ, his anointed one. And this is a prophecy that takes place at the end of human history. Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the cry of autonomous man wanting to be free from the authority of God and rejection of God in, in negative volition. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is God scoffing at them. The Lord scoffs at them. That he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. This is what God says in verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the inauguration and coronation of the messianic king at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then he says, I will surely tell, this is a quote from the king. This is the king talking. You see, this is very subtle in the Hebrew. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. See, in verse 6, it is Yahweh, God the Father, speaking. But in verse 7, it says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, so who's speaking there? He said to me, thou art my son. So the one who is speaking there is the son. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, the decree of the Lord takes us from the future events of this final conflict between the Lord's anointed and all the nations of the earth and the coronation of the king and the establishment of the messianic kingdom all the way back to eternity past where we have the council of divine decrees when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit established the decree of the Lord for all of human history, which, if you remember, by definition, is an eternal decree. That means there never was a time when this decree did not exist. So you go back to the decree of the Lord, and at the time of the establishment of the divine decree, God the Father said to me, the speaker, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee. So when, according to this passage, was God the Son begotten of God the Father? In the eternal decree. So He is eternally begotten of God the Father. So the role of the Son is a, He is a Father. Father and Son are functional terms describing the role of, of, of the first person and the second person of the Trinity in their essential nature and relationship to one another for all eternity. God the Son did not become the God the Son simply at the incarnation or at some other time or at the coronation. And this raises an important question that has come up in theology that we have to deal with, an important problem, because somebody always wants to nail down when Jesus was begotten. And in some sense they're all right, and in some sense they're all wrong. Because the term Son of God has different nuances and different emphasis, which we have to look at. So the day that's in view uh, here is the day of the coronation and ties this fulfillment of the begottenness and his sonship as the messianic king to the coronation, but it relates it back to an eternal decree and the eternal begotten relationship of the Son to the Father. Me, this is the Son talking to the Father, and I won't know. This shifts back. The Father is talking to the Son. Ask of me, and I will surely give thee 
Surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. This is Jesus Christ coming back at the second advent at the head of the armies of the angels, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth. When we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, and there's that phrase in there, Lord Sabaoth. That is a Hebrew word for hosts. That's how it's translated King James. It literally means armies. That he is the Lord of the armies of heaven. And as the general of generals and the Lord of lords and king of kings, he comes back as the head of the angelic armies to subdue the earth. Now, the Messianic king is, is portrayed here as this conquering hero who rules and subdues the earth. But as time went by in, in Israel, it became apparent that none of the kings in the south, Rehoboam, Joash, Asa, whoever they were, Hezekiah, they all failed. So there was going to be an ideal king, and two psalms were written that were related to this. So let's turn over to Psalm 45, and we'll learn a little more about how the Messiah is presented in the Old Testament. I hope you're enjoying this. To me, this is fascinating to trace these doctrines through the Scripture like this because they show that, that it's all there for all time. And you, people don't get this. I remember in seminary hearing professors say, okay, now this is important for you to learn, but you don't need to teach it. And I say, well, if it's important for me to know, why isn't it important for everybody else to know? We all need to know this, and, we, and I'm so tired of people just scratching the surface with superficial inanities and not getting into the real text. And you know, if you study Hebrews... Sometime, and any of you have ever read Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, and that's one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand, the writer of Hebrews thinks he's just giving basic doctrine. And yet most Christians today can't understand anything in Hebrews because they're so abysmally ignorant of doctrine. So we have to reach some level of doctrinal understanding so we can advance to spiritual maturity. Psalm 45 anticipates the ideal king. Verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness or uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom, indicating that the rule of God in the millennium, the rule of the messianic ruler, is characterized by righteousness. So far, this looks pretty good, and it's pretty simple, but I want you to pay attention to this verse, and let's, you always have to pay attention to your pronouns and understand who they're talking about. Thy throne... That's a little hard. Let's just say your throne. Get rid of the thighs. Thy throne, or your throne, O God. So, it's addressed to Elohim here. It's not Yahweh in view here. The Hebrew says, your throne, O Elohim, is forever and ever. And your scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So, it's addressing to Elohim. And then it gets a little more complicated in the next verse. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness. Remember, God loves righteousness and can only love righteousness. It's part of the integrity of God. And he hates wickedness. God cannot have any fellowship whatsoever with unrighteousness. Then, notice, pay attention closely. Therefore, God, your God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 6 says, is addressing God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, thy God. Wait a minute. In verse 5, we're addressing God. And in verse 6, we're addressing God again and then talking about your God, God. So 
we've got two gods here. Very subtle in the Hebrew. You've got two gods. This indicates that this is a clear expression of the Trinity in the Old Testament. An address of God in verse 6, and then the addressing that same God in verse 7 and referring to your God. Your God has anointed thee. And what do you think that word is in the Hebrew? Mashiach. This is talking, the your God that is being addressed here is the Messiah, the, the Messianic King, the ruler in the millennium. And then it says, your God has anointed you. So it's talking about how God the Father, that's the, the your God in verse 7, is God the Father. Therefore God, your God, that's God the Father, has anointed you, God the Son, with the oil of joy above thy fellows. Now that's a strong passage to use for the Trinity in the Old Testament. This is the perfect king, ideal king. He's going to be God himself. Man can't do it, so God is going to do it for man. That is grace. Now let's turn over a few more Psalms to Psalm 110. And this is known as the enthronement psalm. Starts off the Lord, this is the tetragrammaton in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Looks like this, the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means four letters. Tetra, four, grammaton, letters. Y-H, W-H, probably pronounced something like Yahweh. Um mistranslated Jehovah because the Jews in writing what they normally read which was Adonai they never pronounced the formal name of God they always treated it with respect and read Adonai whenever they saw it so in order to remind the reader they inserted the vowel points of Adonai to the tetragrammaton when later on when some English readers came along and translated the Yod as a J and the Vav as a V they added the vowels from Adonai to Yahweh and ended up with a illegitimate word, Jehovah. That's where that comes from. So those who want to witness, be witnesses for Jehovah, who knows who Jehovah is? He's not in the Bible anywhere. That's just a made-up name. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai. So here we have a discussion between two members of deity. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So the, this psalm indicates the time when God the Son ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father until the second advent when uh, his enemies will be made a footstool, a symbol of conquering and domination when Jesus Christ returns to establish the thousand-year millennial reign on the earth. Now one other passage that we'll touch on on our way back uh, just to make sure you have your sword drill for the morning, let's go to Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. I always find it interesting that most people can, at least today, many Christians can find their way and navigate their way around the Internet, but you come up with a book like Amos or Hosea or Joel, they have a very difficult time finding it. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. 
So we have the revelation of God to his servants, the prophets, and the ultimate prophet is Jesus Christ. And that revelation is going to be discussed in John chapter 5. So let's go back to John chapter 5. All that I have said so far simply relates to the fourth point under the sonship of Christ, Son of God, that it has this term, Son of God, has a strong meaning for kingship. And in the Old Testament was specifically, we see this term of son of, specifically tied to the Messianic king, the son of David. Point number five, when did Jesus become the son of God? Some say it was at the incarnation. Others say it was at the public presentation by John the Baptist at his baptism. Others say it was at his ascension and still others at his coronation. So the question is, and point five just simply raises the question, when did Jesus become the Son of God? Point number six, the, the term Son of God relates to Christ's essential deity and not generation. Therefore, this term relates to his eternal relationship to the Father and is not a term acquired at any time in human history. He is the eternal Son of God. Galatians 4.4, 4, Romans 8.3, and Colossians 1, 13 through 17. Galatians 4, 4, Romans 8, 3, and Colossians 1, 13 through 17, and all other nuances which relate to Son of God are simply derivatives of this main idea. So when we talk about the Son of God in terms of His coronation, it is derivative to the main idea of His eternal generation from the Father. Point number seven. The eternal Son of God became the Son of God in relationship to His humanity at the Incarnation. That's true. But He was eternally the Son of God. But He becomes the Son of God in one sense at the Incarnation. He has always been the Son, and that was determined by Psalm 2.7 at the Council of Divine Decrees. So Son of God defines His essence and His function in relationship to the Father throughout all eternity. Point number eight. His sonship is recognized at the baptism. When God the Father announced from heaven, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus said it didn't start there because when Jesus, when Jesus was 12, He stayed behind at the temple and Mary and Joseph went on back home with the caravan and halfway home they realized Jesus wasn't with them. When they went back to find Him, what did Jesus said? say? I had to be about my Father's business. So it couldn't have begun at the baptism. He was already about his father's business at age 12. Point nine, couldn't have occurred at the, it doesn't occur at the resurrection or ascension because Jesus addresses the father as father all throughout his earthly ministry. He refers to himself as the son here in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 10 and other places. Point number 10, the term son in Hebrews 1.3, which relates to the coronation, relates to the sonship in relationship to the Davidic covenant and the coronation of the Son of God as the Davidic Son in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So the term Son in Hebrews 1.3 relates to the sonship in light of the Davidic covenant. And then in conclusion, point 11, Jesus is declared to be the eternal Son of God in the day of the issuance of the eternal decree in Psalm to seven, which is not a prophecy of his coronation, but is a prophecy 
of His victory because He was declared the Son in eternity past. I want you to get that right. Psalm 2-7 isn't a prophecy of His coronation, but a prophecy of His victory. It's not a prophecy that He is going to become Son when He's crowned, but it's a prophecy of His victory because He has already been declared to be the Son from eternity past. And what this does is it ties together under one umbrella all the uses of Son of under the overriding concept of Son of God from all eternity. So back to 5.19, we see Jesus says the Son, and there the very use of that term just is freighted with meaning for the Jews that are listening to Him. I mean, it is a slap in the face. By the use of the term, they are hearing, I am the ideal messianic king, the divine one from all eternity, and I can't do anything of myself or from the ultimate source of myself unless I see the Father doing it because I am completely subordinate to His will and His plan. For whatever the Father does, and this is a present active subjunctive, indicating potentiality, whatever the Father plans. See, the Father planned it and the Son executes it, but the Father planned it in eternity past, so it's potential. Whatever the Father does, potential, subjunctive mood, these things the Son also does, present active indicative. He carries it out and fulfills it in complete submission to the plan of the Father. Isn't this phenomenal? I don't know how guys who don't know Greek can even teach this. I mean, they just fly past this stuff in one message and uh, can't even understand the dynamics of the person of Jesus Christ because they can't get into the text. And that's only the second verb. We don't have time to get into the other three verbs that relate to deity this week, so we'll have to come back to them next week. The bottom line on this is Jesus is the Son of God, and that is why He can redeem us, because He is fully God. We cannot have life in any other than one who is fully God, who is in and of himself, eternal life. And that's where Jesus is going in this argument. Because he is who he is, he is the only one who has the ability to go to the cross and die as our substitute. And for that reason, all judgment is given to him and he becomes the one who is the source of eternal life. So that man can have life in no other name, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So salvation is very simple and is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ exclusively with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at these incredible truths related to our Lord and Savior, the eternal Son of God. Father, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, we want to make sure that we give the opportunity to anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny. They're not sure, they don't know, and they never have trusted Christ as their Savior. And right now they have the opportunity in the privacy of their own soul to say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for my sins. That's all that's necessary. It doesn't involve any works joining the church, giving any money, doing good, making a commitment. All of these are superfluous and unnecessary. The only thing necessary is simple faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
And Father, we thank You for our study of these things this morning. May our thoughts about our Lord and Savior be challenged. And may we reflect upon these things and the magnificence of His person in this coming week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.